So I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the quintessence of the gospel. The word quintessence means the heart and soul. It speaks of that which comes from the deep. There's nothing superficial about the gospel. Quintessence is best defined as that which accentuates the most important part of something or someone. It draws our attention to the most important part. We live in a day where churches argue over such trivial things and they miss Christ. They miss His heart. The quintessence or the heart and soul of the Apostle Paul's ministry was to reveal the love of Christ through the cross and through the gospel of grace. He did that so that you and I could have the assurance and the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. You see, he was only a mystery in the old covenant. He's not a mystery today so that he could reveal God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom you and I are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The gospel translates as the good news. We live in a world where we're constantly sucker punched by bad news. We are ambushed daily by bad news. So it is refreshing to get good news. And that's what the gospel does. It keeps bringing in good news. But friends, let me tell you something. There is no good news without the cross. You would know good news without the cross. Have you ever noticed that when you tickle a little kid, they like it, yet they don't like it? My youngest grandson, Wally, Every time he comes over, he climbs up in my lap and he says, Tickle me, Bumpa. Oh, I'll grab that arm and pull it back and I'll take that one finger. That's my tickler. And I'll stick that under his arm and I'll start tickling Wally. And he doesn't take much of it. He'll be laughing at first, but then the same little boy that begged Bumpa to tickle him will beg Bumpa to stop. Laughter can quickly turn to tears because prolonged tickling is actually very painful. When I think about the cross, I think about two very different emotions, sorrow and joy, tickle and non-tickle. You see, one moment the cross will bring me to tears, and the next moment it will bring me to cheers as I cheer for what my Jesus did, and I celebrate what he did. I love the cross. My Savior shed His precious blood on that cross. When Jesus looked to the cross, it was very painful. But when Jesus looked through the cross, it brought exceeding joy. I want that to sink in your hearts this morning. Looking to something is one thing. Looking through it. And I'll tell you what, if you really want to find some rest in your Christian walk, We've got to look not just to, but through the cross, because that's how the Father looks at us. He looks at us through the cross of Christ. Otherwise, he could never see us as perfect. Two very different emotions, even that Jesus experienced. 
tickle and non-tickle, but it was for the glory of God and it was for the cause of Christ. Friends, let me tell you something. The cross is the quintessence, the heart and soul from where the gospel originates. It alone makes Christianity different than every other religion. It does. There was no flexibility, there was no give and take, and there was no room for compromise with the Apostle Paul's message of righteousness by grace through faith. And how did that gift come? Righteousness by grace through faith came through the cross. It didn't come any other way, it came through the cross. Paul's pen harmonized with his tongue. He preached what he wrote and he wrote what he preached. Not once did the Apostle Paul marginalize the cross or the gospel of grace. He didn't get off on all this philosophy and rhetoric that so many people get off on. When performance-centered gospels are preached, that's philosophy and rhetoric and old covenant. When you inject that into the plan of salvation, listen to me carefully, you empty the cross of its power. Jesus was not peripheral in Paul's eyes. He was the essence of what Paul lived for and what Paul preached for and what Paul died for ultimately. He was everything to the Apostle Paul and he's everything to me, that's for sure. Paul's purpose, Paul's passion, and Paul's persuasion was to preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what I want you to see through the message today, that you and I, too, can be filled with purpose and passion and persuasion. How do we do this? By looking through the cross and not just to the cross. You see, when we look through the cross, we have to look at it through the lens of the finished work because the cross took place. Jesus hung on a cross. And so when we look through the cross, he's no longer on the cross. We have to see what he saw, and he saw a finished work. That's why we always preach about the finished work. It's what Jesus saw when he looked through the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, we find this truth. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Oh, let's camp on this scripture for just a second. The Apostle Paul said, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Now we know by scripture that Paul baptized people. We see that in scripture. So the question becomes, would Paul be in disobedient? Of course not. What Paul was saying there essentially was, this is not the quintessence. This is not the heart and soul of my ministry to baptize. People that are with me will get you baptized. It was peripheral in Paul's eyes, preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. That was the essence of Paul's ministry. And he said, but I don't want to preach the gospel with wisdom and eloquence. In other words, he was saying, listen, I don't want to just preach with man's philosophies. I don't want to just preach with man's wisdom. I want to preach the cross. I'm not here just to dumb things down, but I'm here to preach the cross and the grace of God because in it is the power unto salvation. When it actually says there that the cross of Christ is emptied of its power, it literally means it's been neutralized of its power. It literally refers to counterbalanced. 
The cross doesn't need to be neutralized. The cross doesn't need to be counterbalanced with things. And I know there's ministries today, and I love people. I love the Word of God. I love it that preachers preach. But they keep counterbalancing the cross. They keep counterbalancing the gospel with, this is your responsibility. This is what you have to do to remain safe. No, the cross does not need a counterbalance. The cross is nullified when you add anything to it. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. The cross is confrontational. Oh, it is. It's hated by people across the globe, including people in the United States of America. You say, why? I'll tell you why. Because the cross invokes the question, what are you going to do with the man on the cross? We know it represents Christ. We know that Christ hung on a cross. And you have to come to that question and answer session, what am I going to do with the man on the cross? You see, when we are driving, we will stop at a stop sign, a crossroads, if you will. And at that crossroads, you have a decision you can make. I can go straight, I can turn left, I can turn right, or I can do a U-turn and head back the same direction I came. Friends, the cross is more than just an intersection. The cross is the way to Christ. It's the only way to Christ. And Apostle Paul knew that so well. Again, that scripture, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What was the Apostle Paul saying? He was literally saying, I'm going to preach this gospel of grace on such a grassroots level that ordinary people get it, that the tickled and the untickled alike get it, and they can understand it, and they can embrace it. He was essentially saying, your Yale wisdom and your Harvard eloquence are no substitute for the cross. Preach the cross, preach Christ, preach grace, and I'll tell you what, you're going to see people saved. You're going to see people converted. For through the cross of Christ is the power and the salvation. That is the quintessence. That is the heart and soul of the gospel. You say, what gospel? The gospel of grace. That's the gospel. Grace is not a doctrine. Grace is the gospel. And it was released through the nail perforated hands and feet of a loving Savior that hung on a tree 2,000 years ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Friends, without the cross, there is no gospel. Without the cross, there is no power under salvation. Without the power of salvation, there is no eternal life. Without the cross, there is no confident expectation of good. And without the cross, there is no hope for man. We see this truth in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. It was a group that called themselves the circumcision like they were better than everybody, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul is saying that at one time you were separated from God. And if I turn my calendar back far enough, I can think of a time that I was separated from God just because I didn't want to come to Christ. He says you were separated, you were excluded, you were foreigners, you were without hope, and you were without God. So the question I say is, what made the radical difference? What made the radical change that we could be connected to God, that we could be included in God's family? What brought the change that we could have hope? I'll tell you what it was. It was the cross. It began at the cross. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about the cross. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He has destroyed the barrier. (laughs) He didn't just hide it. He didn't just move it out of the way. The Bible says he destroyed it. You know, when I'm driving down the road and they're doing construction, they have these cement barriers and you can tell the cars that got up on them because you see their tire marks on them. But you know what? They don't destroy the barrier. They destroy the car. The barrier is fine. But Christ said, listen, I'm not going to destroy the vehicle. I'm going to destroy the barrier. I'm going to separate the barrier. I'm going to destroy it from you. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Did you see that? How he did it? How did he do it? He set aside in his flesh. He destroyed it in his flesh. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God. Look at those words through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The cross is a picture of death for Jesus and it's a picture of death for humanity. You see, because we were crucified with Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, but let's add verse 21 as well. Look at this. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, look at that next scripture there. Look at what it says there. It says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. How can you frustrate the grace of God? I don't frustrate the grace of God. He says, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. How do you frustrate grace? by trying to attain righteousness by your own performance. When the gift is laid in front of you, when the gift is working inside of you, you frustrate grace simply by saying, that's not enough. I need to add something to it. No, you frustrate the grace of God. Remember when Christ was crucified on the cross, the Bible says you were crucified with him. Does it say that? I am crucified with Christ. Oh, I get happy about this stuff. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Friends, the cross represented death for Jesus, and it represented death for humanity. In Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, we see this echoed once again. For if we died with Christ, and how do we know we died with Christ? Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Okay, so now we can move on. So if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. And let me tell you the good news, you can't either. You see, he can't die a physical death again, and you can't die a spiritual death. Oh yeah, we're going to die a physical death, absolutely. Christ will never die another physical death. And I'll tell you what, you'll never die another spiritual death. You've already been crucified on the cross. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, I love this, he died to sin, look at that, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does he mean by the same way? Death no longer has mastery over you. 
You cannot die another spiritual death. You've already done it. See, this is where people get hung up. They don't believe they're dead to sin. Why? Because they keep sinning. They go, wait a minute, I can't be dead to sin. I keep sinning. Friends, being dead to sin doesn't mean we don't commit sin. It means we cannot die again, spiritually speaking, because death no longer has mastery over us, okay? Now, I saw something on the internet a couple of days ago. I don't click on everything I see, otherwise I'd have no time for nothing. I read this little article that in the 1980s, some loggers from a southern state were cutting wood, and they were cutting a grove of chestnut oaks. And as they cut those massive trees down, they picked them up with machinery and put them on a truck. And a logger began to walk by the end of one of the logs, and he happened to look into a hollowed out point on the log, and this is what he saw. That's kind of scary. It's kind of graphic. You see, that was somebody's hunting dog that got out in the woods and he was chasing probably a squirrel or a rabbit and there was a hole in the bottom of that tree where it was kind of hollowed out. That dog climbed up in there chasing. I mean, his nature was get the rabbit, get the squirrel, whatever it may be. And he got so far up in there and he got stuck and he couldn't get out. He couldn't find his way back out. He was stuck. In fact, they've actually named this dog Stucky. He's in a museum. The interesting thing is, the reason why he is so preserved is because of the type of tree that he was stuck in, a chestnut oak. That's where the substance tannin comes from. That's what they use in taxidermy to tan hides. Because what that tannin does is it wicks away the moisture. And they get that from this tree. And I was thinking about this in the early morning hours this morning. I couldn't help but think in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible talks about Jesus being the tree of life and how much more that we've been put in Christ. You know, we've been put in a perfect environment. You see, when that dog climbed into that environment, he was in the perfect environment to preserve him. And we are in the perfect environment in Christ because he not only hung on a tree, but he is the tree of life. And it's the perfect atmosphere. It's the most perfect environment for us to be in. Why? Because we are preserved in Christ. There is no decay in Christ. You know why? Because the blood of Jesus on the cross has wicked away our sin. Uh, to me, that just seems refreshing to know that and see this. The cross represents suffering, sadness, and pain. Yet there's something so beautiful that emanates from the cross. This past Wednesday, October 17th, made 23 years ago on that day that I said goodbye to my little boy Taylor as he drifted into heaven. I want to tell you something about that. It was a day that was absolutely filled with great suffering and sadness and pain. If you've never lost a child, you don't understand it. It was one of the most hurtful days of my life, and it brought me to my knees. But five years later, on that same day of the same month, October 17th, five years to the day that my little guy went to heaven, on that day, that day morphed into one of the most meaningful days of my life as a beautiful young lady by the name of Valerie 
would say yes as I'd get on my knees once again and propose to her. You see, an event in my life that had once been filled with shadows of sorrow had been hijacked. It had been dwarfed by a day that was filled by a profusion of passion. Daddy had taken one of the most hurtful days that I had ever experienced in my life, and he rotated it. He turned it on its head into one of the most meaningful days of my life. Friends, that's exactly what happened at the cross. Daddy took something so hurtful. He took something so painful, and he transformed it into something so beautiful and something so meaningful. He took tickle and non-tickle, and he brought them together at the cross so that beauty could rise out of ashes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. This is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong, not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body, look at those words, to carry our sins to the cross so that we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so that we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. Friends, the quintessence of the gospel is that Jesus carried our sins to the cross so that we could be rid of sin, named by him, and permanently kept by the shepherd of our souls. Quintessence refers to the most important part of something or the most important part of someone. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you agree with me that the most important part of a building is the foundation? Would you agree with that? Everything is built on the foundation. Everything is established. Everything rises above the foundation. Say it like this. Everything rests upon the foundation. Likewise, the gospel has a foundation. It is the baseline in which everything is established and rests upon. You see, there are many who do not accept or believe in the simplicity of the gospel and the power of the cross. But the cross is the foundation in which the gospel rests upon. We see this truth in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22, and then it spills over into Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, these truths. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Remember when we were called foreigners at one time? He said, you're no longer a foreigner and a stranger, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built, there it is, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. Oh, they had, see, they had to bring that in. See that? And now they just talked about what you're built upon, the foundation. And they said, let me tell you how this all happened. He said, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, there's that mystery again. The mystery made known to me by the revelation as I have already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations. Didn't I tell you that? They didn't know about him in other generations, but we do. It was not made known in other generations as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel... What is the gospel? It is the good news. Through the gospel. What is the gospel about? The gospel is about grace. It might as well just say through grace. It says the mystery. Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love it. Apostle Paul, this is an iconic statement. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I want to tell you something. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of my Savior. I'm not ashamed of me. Now, at one time, I would have been, oh, man, I, I probably, I'll just be honest with you, I probably would have felt shame or guilt or something. I don't know. I would have felt funny getting up in front of people talking about Jesus. But when he gives you a new heart, it's different. And I definitely would have had shame about myself. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. He's already put the good news inside of me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, we find this word. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. In other words, you've been established upon this. You get established upon the gospel, the gospel of grace, in which you take your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. In other words, what he's saying, I have imparted the gospel to you. I have told you there's one way to Christ. I have told you it's by grace and not by works, lest any man should boast. I've given you all that framework. And if you want to color outside that line and go some other way and try to do this, he's saying you have believed in vain. Because there is no way other than Christ and through the gospel. For what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance, look at these words, that Christ died for our sins. Where did he die at? He died on the cross. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Friend, do you see the entire gospel right there? You see the crucifixion, you see the burial, you see the resurrection. That is the gospel. And he says, if you'll believe that, he said, you'll be safe. He said, that is the baseline. This is where you get your confident expectation. This is where you get your confident hope. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. What was the gospel that the apostle Paul preached? We just watched a vignette of Jesus at the whipping post. Was that good news? No. We know that Jesus was crucified. Was that good news? No, I wouldn't call that good news. But we know he was buried too. Was that good news? No, not really. But the truth that he came out of the grave, that is good news. He's not in the grave anymore. He's no longer on a cross. He's seated at the Father's right hand and God reached down and put you inside of Christ and seated you in heavenly places with Christ. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is where our hope really 
is established and where it really is solidified, where it truly begins, what separates us from every other religion. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Who was saying that? The Sadducees were saying that. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. It was a package deal. Do you see that? The whole purpose for him to come and shed his blood and pay for our sins and take away the barrier and go to a grave and be resurrected is so that we could come with him. It was a package deal. And he said, if he didn't do it, you didn't do it. If you didn't do it, he didn't do it. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. I'm not in my sins anymore. <laughs> that makes me just laugh. I feel like little Wally getting tickled right now. It just makes me joyful knowing I'm not in my sins. The barrier has been taken away. There's nothing between us. I'm no longer a foreigner. I'm no longer an alien. Some of you think I probably am, but I'm not. I'm in his family. But Christ has been raised from the dead, and we have been raised in newness of life with him. I love what Andrew Murray said. He said, a dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. True. If he's still dead, I've got to work. I've got to wake him up. I got to get him going. Get the AED out. What do we need to do here? No, he's risen. And he does everything for me. And you know what? I'll tell you what, that's where you'll find a lot of joy. You don't need to work at doing things to be saved. But I'll tell you what, people will see the glory and the goodness of your father by your good works. The things that you do, the glory that you release, the sweetness of the gospel that you release. They'll see, they'll get a picture of what the father and what Jesus looks like. The Apostle Paul was an amazing man of God. I was thinking about him this week and I thought, man, if I had to take two breeds of dogs that I felt would best describe the Apostle Paul's characteristics, it would be the Chihuahua and the St. Bernard. The Chihuahua, because that breed has a confidence way beyond its size. Have you ever noticed that about a Chihuahua? I don't care whether they're around a human being or they're around another dog. They have a confidence that's a million times bigger than their body. You don't believe me? Just set one on somebody's lap one time. You even get close and those things come unglued on you, man. Somebody was telling me the other day that they couldn't even get in somebody's house. I mean, they just came over to visit and they said the dog wouldn't let them in. And I didn't even know what kind of dog it was. I said, was it a Chihuahua? And they said, yeah, how'd you know? I said, I know those dogs. They're just that way, you know. They have this boldness, this confidence, if you will. The body of Christ lacks confidence because they do not fully understand grace. They don't understand his sacrifice. They don't understand the gift of righteousness. They don't fully grasp it. They don't understand that the barrier has been taken away. And so they lack confidence. They don't understand the magnitude of this gift, this gift of righteousness. They underestimate the fact that their sins, their Savior, and their sentence were all nailed to the cross. Not only your Savior, but your sins and the sentence. You had a pending death sentence. 
And he said, I'm going to nail that to the cross. And the written code was nailed there as well. People are performing to please daddy when the quintessence of the gospel is rest. We see this truth in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, how do you enter his rest? Through Christ. Jesus is the Father's rest. He said, anyone who enters God's rest, how did you enter it? You were crucified with him. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Listen, this scripture isn't to make us a bunch of lazy, lethargic Christians. I don't see that in any of you, and certainly not my MO. I'm not getting at that, but I'm talking about understanding that he finished the work. I can rest in that area of my life, spiritually speaking, because Jesus did it, and he did it right. He's been raised from the dead. I've been raised from the dead in Christ. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Now, here's the importance of resting, learning to rest in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because we are people that just seem like we always have a lot of need. I don't care what need it is, whether it's finances, your body, a marriage, relationship, whatever, it may be, your ministry, we have these needs. And so when you begin to rest in his finished work, you don't have to come crawling to the throne of grace. You don't have to come begging at the throne of grace. You can come to the throne of grace with boldness, the Bible says. You can come with confidence where we find mercy, where we find grace to help us in our time of need. Did you know that there are ancient documents that record the Apostle Paul to be very small in frame and stature? Folklore actually gave him the nickname of the man of three cubits. Well, let me tell you something about that. A cubit is 18 inches. 18 times 3 is 54. 54 inches divided by 12 is 4 foot 6. I don't know if that's true or not, but I can tell you this for certain. Paul, regardless of his size, was a missionary giant. And isn't that just like daddy? Isn't that just like God to take a little man and give him a big mandate? Isn't that just like daddy? It sure is. And what exactly was that mandate? It was to reveal to man... Listen to me carefully, that he is absolutely righteous apart from works, innocent apart from effort, secure in spite of sin, reconciled without record, forgiven without contingencies, loved without limitations, and consecrated without his own contribution. That is the quintessence of the gospel. He didn't do anything. He did it all. The name Paul actually translates as small. The Greek definition for Paul is small. Chihuahuas, although small, are one of the most protective breed of dogs there are. And the Apostle Paul was very, listen to me, he was very protective of the gospel. He wouldn't let you add anything to it, and he wouldn't let you take anything from it. He was protective of that gospel. Oh, he was. He would not allow it to be watered down, trampled down, or cast down. And he would not allow the precious gospel of grace to be mixed with any form of law or performance-centered Christianity. He wouldn't allow it. He would get in your space, in your face. He wasn't mean-spirited, but I'll tell you what, you knew what he was thinking. Remember? He spoke what he wrote, and he wrote what he spoke. 
I love that about my daughter, Sarah. I'll tell you what, you'll always know what Sarah's thinking. She's not mean-spirited about it, but she doesn't hold anything back. That's a firstborn for you, I guess. But man, I'll tell you, I love that about her. I love that about firstborns. I love that about people that don't hide things like that. You'll know what's on their mind. And some people are just gifted to be able to do that. Other people, they're not so gifted at it. You know what I mean? They always tell you what's on their mind, but you just feel beat up after they tell you. But there are people that can tell you what's on their mind, tell you what's on their heart, kind of laugh about it and just move right on. You go, oh, I, I, I get that. I get the reproof. I get the correction. She had to yank the slack out of me at supper last night. <laughs> I was trying to talk to one of her daughters while she was trying to correct her for something, you know, and get her attention. And I'm trying to say, come and sit on Bumpa's lap. And she's like, Mark? I'm like, what? I'm trying to parent. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but that's the way the Apostle Paul was. You didn't have to read between the lines. You knew what was on his mind. And there was no compromise when it came to the gospel. He would not back down. He had such a revelation, such an insight, because Jesus taught him personally, not when he walked with the other 12, but after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he had an encounter with Jesus in the Arabian Desert. And there for three years, Jesus just poured into his heart, probably put his arm around him one day, and he was walking with him. I don't know. And he said, come on, Paul. He said, listen, I'm not going to send you out to baptize. There's other guys that are going to be with you going to do that. I'm sending you to preach the gospel. For three years, I have poured into your heart. I have poured into your life. You're not going to get this wrong, Paul. And you're going to do it right. And many are going to be one to Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, we find these words. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There's the confrontation right there, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Galatians. This is the Apostle Paul. He's already visited Galatia. He's already won these people to Christ. He's already set a foundation in place. It's righteousness by grace through faith. You can add nothing to his finished work and then moved on. So what was the Apostle Paul saying to the Galatians? He was saying, when I first came to you, my message was grace and peace and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, and reconciliation. But when I kissed you goodbye, and I continued on my missionary journey, the Judaizers came along with a bag of snarling chihuahuas. And they said, we have a chihuahua for you. We have a chihuahua for you. And you get a chihuahua, and you get a chihuahua. You all get snarling chihuahuas. Because you know what? That snarling chihuahua with a spike collar is going to jump right up on your lap. And you know what? You're going to need that little chihuahua to protect you. You're going to need that to protect you because this grace that the Apostle Paul was telling you about, it ain't that good. You've got to add something to that. You've got to obey Moses' law. You've got to add baptism and circumcision to this. Do you see what happened? And that's why he's upset about this thing and he's addressing it with them. They told you that you got to protect yourself by keeping the law of Moses. You see, what the Judaizers did is they convinced the Galatians that they needed a helper in addition to the Holy Spirit. So here, have a chihuahua. There you go. He'll protect you. 
in doing what they did, they stripped the Galatians of their confidence and rest. That's so important. I'm going to tell you something now. You add anything to Christ, you add anything to this gospel, you'll find the first thing is going to go is your confidence is going to go out the window and your rest is going to go out the window. I am as confident as I have ever been in my entire Christian walk and I have as much rest as I've ever had in my Christian walk because I know there are no barriers. I'm in his family. I don't need a chihuahua. I don't need anything else. I have the Holy Spirit. I hear his voice and I just let him work through me. So in doing so, they stripped them of their confidence and rest. They made the gospel of grace small like Paul and the law of Moses a million times larger than it was ever meant to be. Those Judaizers were barking dogs that disrupted the quintessence of the gospel that was flowing in the Galatians. Friends, my Bible tells me there's one gospel. Now they call it the gospel of peace and they call it the gospel of grace and there's the gospel of Christ. That's where you see that in the New Testament. But do you see what it all points back to? It all points back to Jesus. It all points back to him. That's the gospel. The gospel's found in Christ. Amen. Continuing. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. I mean, Paul is using some really strong language here. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. I want you to take that and weld that to the essence of your inner being because you're always going to encounter things out there, out there in the world. You're going to hear other ministers that try to undo your shoestrings, the shoestrings of your mind. Just when you think you've got it all packaged right and you understand it, someone comes along that seems convincing like the Judaizers and says, no, you need the Chihuahua. No, you need Moses' law. No, I don't need anything. I have the Holy Spirit. I've got the Holy Spirit. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached, look at those words, is not of human origin. Well, if it's not of human origin, where did it come from? It came from Christ. It came from God. It's not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was also like the St. Bernard because he was always on a rescue mission. He was constantly digging people out from underneath the avalanche of performance-based Christianity and the aftershock of the Judaizers. We see this truth in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, some of my closing scriptures. He came back and he says, man, he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Good question, isn't it? Ask yourself the same question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, obeying those Ten Commandments, all those 613 Jewish laws? Did you receive the Spirit by obeying the law? 
He said, listen, this is just multiple choice. One or two, true or false, I like that kind of stuff. And this is what he did. He said, listen, let's just do a multiple choice here, okay? Did you receive this by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And who'd you hear it from? You heard it from me. They knew in context what he was talking about. And then he says it again. He said, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? See, friends, that's where we're stuck at. We're like stucky in the tree, man. We understand, and many of us get a good grasp on the fact that it is about Jesus. It began with Jesus, but we have to finish it. Now we're trying to finish it by means of the flesh. What is the flesh? It's the yucky stuff of us. It's just not the skin. It's the yucky part of us, you know, that keeps trying to raise up. He said, really, do you want to finish what I began, something so beautiful? Last Wednesday, when that date rolled around, I realized I lost a boy on that day, but I realized a treasure walked into my life too. Now, whether it happens on the exact same day for you, that's up to you. I felt the Holy Spirit say, I want you to use that day. You see, I could have done that a week or two earlier or a week or two later, but I heard the Holy Spirit say, I want you to do it on that day because I'm going to hijack that day. That's not going to be a lonely day for you anymore. You're going to have something so awesome. When I asked that woman, Valerie, to marry me, I'm telling you, that was one of the most beautiful things you'd ever seen in your life. Not on just on my part, but on her part, on what the Holy Spirit was doing. He continues, he says, so also Abraham believed God. Now, why did he do that? He took us all the way back to Genesis, where the gospel's not even mentioned. The word itself might not be mentioned, but there's been good news from day one with God. You see, it says, but Abraham believed God. The same way we get saved today is by believing God. Believe in what? Believe in God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And we look to the son for forgiveness. See, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. See, he announced the good news to Abraham that it's just by faith. Just believe me. Believe me that I'm that good. When I say something, I keep my word. I'm a promise keeper, Abraham. And Abraham said, I got it. I believe you, God. And the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man, not a man, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Do you see that? <laughs> no one! Papa, I love you, but not even you. Mama, I love you, but not even you. If there was anybody that said, yes, grandfather them in, no. The Bible says no one is justified by the law. Not one, not single one. No one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What did he do? He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the scriptures are these. God's mystery has been revealed. He is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This treasure began its own missionary journey into our hearts at the cross. And that missionary journey ended with an empty tomb and a risen Savior. When Jesus looked to the cross, it was painful. But when Jesus looked through the cross, there was exceeding and endless and boundless joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Friends, the gospel needs no helpers. There's no need for snarling chihuahuas, and there's no need for the Mosaic law. Christ's death on the cross destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and all of its commandments and regulations. We have been placed in a perfect environment, an environment of preservation. How did that happen? It happened through the quintessence of the gospel. Daddy, I want to thank you. I'm just so happy in my heart this morning. I want to thank you that it was seven years ago that you would give me simple ways to explain deep truths. Daddy, this is so easy that a little kid could get it. Maybe that's why Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. He said, You're going to have to come and trust like a child would trust. Don't try to work this out on your own. You don't need any helpers. That's what we gave you the Holy Spirit for, to be your helper. Daddy, we deal with a lot of peripheral things in life. And these things have a way of sometimes trying to crowd out the heart and soul of the gospel, which is the gospel of peace, the gospel of grace, and the gospel of Christ. And it all began at a cross. And we thank you for this word today in Jesus' name. Amen.